You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. This is Vince Orlando's Human Condition. I'm Sean Davis. We got our special guest, Glenn McIntosh. Um, Glenn, I was joking with Glenn before we started. It would take a half hour to segue into the show to talk about everything Glenn does. Um, he's a, a man of, of um, many professions. Um, it's his heart, it, it, his heart guides him. Um, he's one of the few people I know that um, that he. I don't know. He's found an extra ten hours in the day and won't tell anybody else where they are. But he's got him. Like he's there for everything. But uh, you know, he, he, among other things, he's the spiritual leader at at uh, my church, Renaissance Unity. Um, and that's how I know him. But uh, but Glenn's also the um, the vice president for student affairs and chief diversity officer for Oakland University, and we felt that that was extremely relevant considering recent events. So we're we're going to talk about uh, the George Floyd <clears throat> event, um, how that how that relates to uh, uh, systemic racism, and and why is this this thing different. And then hopefully we can come up with some ideas or have some healthy conversation, maybe have some different ideas. Everybody chime in if you want. Um, we'll try to take as many comments and questions as we can. But uh, hopefully we can get to, uh, uh, you know, some some ground at the end where we're talking about a path forward. So that's kind of the goal of today. We're not going to accomplish that in an hour, but we're going to give it a shot. Never know. Yeah. <laughs> we're going with Glenn here. You might. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I, uh, Glenn, uh, what are your thoughts? Um, you know, I mean, I obviously have my thoughts. I've been pretty vocal, but I, you know, I'm a white guy. Everybody, you can see that I'm a white guy. I, I you know, I grew up in Detroit, and and uh, I've realized a lot through this that. Um, so I grew up in Detroit, and I, I experienced light racism. Right, it wasn't real racism, is what I realized through this because. We, we were just kids. We didn't even know what race was when we were kids. We were just knocking each other around, calling each other names to get us to fight with each other and really didn't have any meaning to it. Um, and for me, I was able to cross eight mile when I was, uh, my, my mom got us out, uh, well, Roseville first for like a year. And then, uh, and then we were in the park. Um, and I realized that, that I don't think I realized then I realized later on in life, but the system wasn't against me now. You know, so I, I didn't have to deal with the peer stuff as much anymore. I was still poor and I still had to fight because I was poor for white people standards. But um, but as you know, so there was still that, but there was no system against me, you know, and, and, and that's and I don't think I realized until, uh, you know, Jim Lee was talking in the men's group one time and he told me about an experience he had when he tried to grab his wallet too fast. Mm-hmm. It never occurred to me in my life that. You know, I'm cocky when I get pulled over. Not all the time, but if I feel like I'm in the right, I'll grab my wallet, I'll throw it. You know, I, I'm a, not so much now. I've grown up, but never in a million years would it have ever occurred to me that my life could end like right then, just for doing it. So, what are your thoughts on on uh, what's transpired right now? What do you think is is different? What you know? What do you think can be done? Yeah. You know, this this is a different kind of experience, and I've been asked quite often over the last few days, you know, what's so different about this uh, episode? And I, you know, say, well, the fact that now everyone has, you know, one of these. Mm. 
and it has a camera on it. And so this is really the first time in our history where such an event has been captured on video and shared. And it has made all the difference in the world because there's no one contesting that this didn't happen. There's no debate that this happened. Everyone is in agreement that it happened and that it was egregious and it's out of character for what we believe um, is proper human treatment. And so there's no debate. And so now you, you hear liberals as well as conservatives. Uh, Russ Limbaugh was on a show the other morning um, talking about how something has to be done. Uh, right. And so the the power of the cell phone and the camera on it, you know, really brought all of us to a higher level of awareness. Um, and we couldn't deny um, that this goes on in our country. And it's unfortunate that it's been going on for a long time. But I would say thank goodness for the cell phone now that we all carry with a camera on it. And because people saw a man murdered um, in cold blood, uh, and then they rewound that tape and looked at it again, and they saw the arrogance of the police officer. Yeah, he not only had his knee on the throat, he had his hand in his pocket, you know, in total defiance of those individuals who were standing by who felt powerless, you know, and they felt so powerless that they knew what was happening after a while when. Um, when George became silent, they knew what was going on. That this guy was getting ready to make a transition uh, out of this life, but they felt like we can't make a move because the system has taught us that if we make a move, then we're gonna be victims. We're next, yeah. yeah. And that was that was the thing is uh, I was writing about and doing this little write up, and and uh, I, I could I couldn't watch the whole video. Like I couldn't I couldn't get through it because it, it was bringing tears to my eyes. Like. It just like how does a human do that? Number one, right? But it gets done. We've mm-hmm. not. I don't. I've never seen it on camera. Um, next to the Iraqi beheadings, you know, where you see that kind of thing. I couldn't watch those either. But but mm-hmm. uh, the guy's screaming for his life, and and that was the thing that caught me too. Is this guy's looking right in the camera? He's not even saying don't film this. He don't yeah. care. There's, a, there's no no remorse. No no uh, fear of consequence at all. And, mm-hmm. and it makes it different than a gun where, you know, naysayers will say, well, it was a split second decision and they were scared. No fear there. <laughs> That's done. That's out the window on this one. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. I mean, he was handcuffed. You know, he was not resisting at the point that he was on the ground. Um, this guy decided, you know, I have so much power and authority that I can do whatever I want to in this scenario. Uh, and so, again, he was in total defiance um, of seeing that victim as a human. Reverend Glenn, I have a question for you. Do you believe that this was like a catalyst for a lot of things that are going on right now? Gentrification is a huge problem in this country. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of different systemic racism practices that have been going on forever and you know part of me is just watching this and uh you know it's kind of like people are saying we've had enough you know we've had enough i mean even 
you know, the mayor for Detroit can come on and do whatever he wants, but the truth is he's evicting people out of their homes for not paying their water bill. Mm-hmm. Just so that a land developer can come in and, and take that property that is now so valuable, which it wasn't before. Yeah. You know, uh, using, you know, privilege and opportunity with impunity um, to dislocate people that have been in their neighborhoods all their life. Mm-hmm. And and I was just wondering, you know, is what's going on more more than, you know, uh, the incident in Minnesota and in Louisville, because this stuff has been going on forever. The police brutality has been going on forever. Yeah, and I, you know, I think you raise a good point. But if you look at the protesters, um, look into their eyes, it's a younger generation, and so some of this is systemic in nature, you know, racism and inequalities, but it's also a generational divide that's showing up here. In that, um, some of the older people, which would probably be in my category, I'm you know plus fifty years of age. Um, a lot of people have grown to kind of accept this. Um, you have moments where the fire, you know, comes alive, um, but you've been ingrained with this is part of America and it's an uphill battle, um, and so you're kind of battle fatigued. But you see a younger generation emerging, saying. Uh, we don't buy into your systems uh, and your processes. And and so what, what they're saying is not only do we not buy into the American values that you espouse, I'm going back to the Constitution when you say all men are created equal. Well, there were some people who were left out of that equation when that document was written. And it begins to flare up, you know, when these kind of incidents happen is that okay, you forgot this group of people. And when you wrote it, they weren't considered equals. And so it's been an uphill battle to pull them into that document and make them equals. Um, Because you got to remember the history of African-Americans in the United States, it was for economic reasons. Uh, and, And to promote that economic engine of the United States, once slavery ended, the question became, what do you do with them? They're here in large numbers. What do you do with them? We don't want to make them equals, uh, even though we know that they're supposed to be equal. And then if we turn to the spiritual side, we know that we're all spiritual beings having a human experience. But based on the hue of someone's skin, we still regulate them to second-class citizens. And so, uh, you know, I I think what you brought up is, is certainly relevant. But we see a lot of... Um, generational divide here and that the younger people, they don't know how to express their disappointment, their anger. Uh, And so we see them in the street and some decide to um, loot and do other things that is inappropriate right now, but they're trying to figure out how do we navigate the United States? Because frankly, some of us have been, you know, bad role models for them. That's, that's my fear is that there's a real opportunity here. You, Never in the history of the U.S. have you seen police support for, you know, stepping out for bad police, like them coming out and getting on their knees and saying, we're with you. I mean, that's that's heartwarming. It's sad that it needs to be that way, that it ever had to happen. But um, but, you know, 
Martin Luther King, because I've been getting into debates, because I'm always going to fight for love, right? Like, that's me now. Me, back in the day, I'd have been knocking down, I'd have been out there doing yeah. some stuff with my boys, and you know what I mean? Because I didn't know how to act either, and I was just making the analogy with Sean. If somebody holds me down in a chokehold and gives me a noogie for like two hours and smacks me in the face and makes me feel like I'm less than a man, mm-hmm. when I get up, I'm not apologizing and saying, I understand you come from a sick society too. You know what I mean? I'm, that's your ass, you know, like you're going to have to kill me, you know? And so I, so I get it. I, I get it. But at the same time, I'm watching an opportunity be lost. And Martin Luther King said, writing is the language of the unheard. Right. So right. if you're not going to listen. Somebody's got to do something. Right. But now that they're listening, it seems they're lacking um, in the, the black lives matter. Uh, movement like this too is is uh, cohesiveness. You know what 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 do we what do we want? What's the message? Now that they're listening, what what do we get from this, and how do we move forward? And I, I see a lot of um, you know a, a lot of older um, black friends of mine are trying to step in and fill that void where the young people they don't know they've never been a part of um, they never had to mobilize or you know but they're mm-hmm. but, a, but the fact that they got violent and they said we're sick of this. Okay, now, now, but now, how do we, how do we shift that into something where they can look in their, you know, their enemies' eyes and say, "Look, we realize you're part of a sick society. Um, let's let's just end it there, and let's figure out how we go forward." But if they don't have a plan, that that that, that conversation can't happen. And that's you already see what Trump's doing, trying to turn the guns on them, and you know what I mean. Like it, it's already. Let's make this a civil war and the bad rioters, right? And then the message is going to get lost. You know, it's amazing because you label it as a, a sick society, and I name it as a society where sameness is valued so often that we line up and we agree that the American values are X, Y, and Z, and the good life looks like this. Uh, and so everybody line up and aim for it. Uh, and so, you know, with that sameness, it takes away uniqueness. And mm-hmm. so we were talking about that earlier today. Um, from my perspective, you mentioned the opportunity on all this. This is the first, you know, nationwide movement where you see all races involved with this. I'm amazed at the number of non-African Americans who are protesting. I left the university um, this evening, um, headed home. And at the far end of campus were a group of protesters assembling. All were white. You know, not a black person in the audience. And so, again, I looked at the faces and they were young people mobilizing, saying, yes, black lives matter. What do we do? And so that question, Vince, how do we mobilize all that energy and that goodwill, good intention? That becomes the next question but a real opportunity because they are those aspiring rising leaders and so if we can use our knowledge base to steer them in how do you actually make those institutional systemic changes um, then we have something that could be powerful yeah i i think there's a real opportunity for a a, i'm always going to revert to martin luther king because it martin luther king was the first jesus christ for me right like he Mm -hmm. he I, I kind of understood the Bible, but I didn't like the whole religious way it was being taught to me. And I didn't understand the parables, but I learned about slavery and I was still in uh, Detroit schools. Right. So I'm surrounded by, you know, predominantly black kids and, and a bunch of them were my friends. And 
and I remember being uh, learning about slavery. I think it was about third grade, and and uh, and I didn't cuss. <laughs> I didn't cuss at the time because I, I feared death from my father, like literal death. So I never cussed in my life. But I remember when we got done with the lesson, I said, "What the fuck slipped out of my mouth?" And my boy next to John Hawkins starts cracking up, and it kind of made light. The teacher didn't call me on it, but I couldn't believe it. Like it was, and, and it seemed like a lot of the kids in the class had just learned about it too. Is in a, in a black family? Is I mean, is that something that you wait for? Uh, do you teach that before you learn it in school? The slavery thing, or is that something that's? I wouldn't know how to have that conversation. Either. Yeah, you know, it's multiple trains of thoughts on what happens in the African American household. Some people don't want to bring it up because they think that it may um, put the kid behind the eight ball where they think they're less than. Yeah. Um, so they kind of dismiss the history. And so a lot of African-Americans don't have this sense of history because we're disconnected from our homeland. Uh, and, and so um, you weigh your options. Do I talk about slavery or do I not? Uh, and so it's always a, a great debate. Um, I, I think. In the school system, we fail to teach the entire story about the formation of America and the growth of America as a great nation, oh, and, yeah. and how we built ourselves up as a world power on you know a lot of free labor for yeah. over two hundred years, uh, and, and so that dismissive nature of slavery and that cleansing of slavery, um, which you see in a lot of history books, you see that the president signed the act and it created a couple of bills that freed the slaves and they're on their way. Um, but there was a lot of struggle to get to um, the positions that we have right now. And there's still, you know, um, a large part of the United States that lives, you know, in subpar conditions. And there's so many inequities and disparities. And the COVID-19 really revealed that, um, the, the health disparities and, and so you had a disproportionate number of people of color um, dying from the virus. So. Yeah, yeah. It, it's been trying. <laughs> it's been mm -hmm. trying. These are these have been trying times. Um, you know, and it, it's hard to watch the division in all of it. Like, you know, there's a virus. Mm -hmm. Everybody wants to get caught up on these numbers and, oh, the, you know, and, and the people who want to go back to work, they're the ones screaming government conspiracy, right? They don't really have any. There's no validation for that. There's nothing that lends to that except for what goes on up here. And is our government crooked? Sure. So you could possibly believe it. Right. But um, but those are the same people for the most part that are that, you know, that are more pissed about the uh, looting than they are the uh, and I've noticed that it's like there's these these lines and it doesn't just exist between black and white. There's these lines between white people and, you know, like we're, we're divided. I was talking to a, a um, and I don't know if I'm supposed to say African-American or black. I'm so, I'm so used to being from Detroit. So we're black and white. That's what we always call each other. But uh, talking to a, an African-American woman last night, she she probably would prefer African-American. Um, and uh she she made a post. She said there's no oppression, and, uh, and she provided a list of statistics. And it rem she was also a uh, COVID denier who worked in the medical field. Um, I'm like, and I just had to chime in. I'm like, look, I'm like, I'm a white guy, and I I saw what white privilege was. I saw once I crossed eight mile. Yeah, I had to, poverty was still a, a bitch, but had I not. Um, 
you know, if I were looking over my shoulder every second, just going to the store. And if I had to get up with that type of anxiety every day, I don't know that I would have. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I'm a white guy and I'm telling you, yes, there's white privilege. And I and I, I actually use that white privilege um, to, you know, to help my black friends. You know, some of my history, like I, I could get things into the city that they couldn't. But, you know, and so I, I so I know it's there. I, I lived it. I lived it. And to say that uh, that the system isn't. I think people what is it? Why, why do you think people don't want to believe that um, they'll believe a conspiracy theory, right? But they mm-hmm. don't want to believe that that uh, that a virus that kills a hundred thousand or a hundred thousand just in our country, but probably near a half million now worldwide, right. should be considered. And and that when whenever a uh, I don't know how many of these incidents we've had um, that could have been reacted to the exact would have called for the same reaction. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but they were hiding behind a gun and the gun's a split second thing. And you always they can always argue, well, it was split second. this you can't. So now it's like, yeah, but how do you how do you I don't know how you chime in on this and throw, show statistics yeah. overlooking this and saying we're not oppressed. Yeah, it is tough because when you look at you know many of the markers and economic markers, health markers, you see that there is a clear disparity in our country based on income level and race. Um, so you can't dispute that. Um, you know, it's funny, Vince, the, because when I look at the young people who are protesting white and black and other colors, um, I think they were so stunned by this ordeal because you know, I think most people practice what I, I say is um, plausibility, denial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In that, you know, we hear about things, but we say, well, that don't really happen. You know, um, mm-hmm. it's not really real. It's exaggerated stories. You know, people don't get stopped, you know, for no reason. You must do something. And of course, you know, in, in my years, um, I've always liked nice cars. And so as a result, you know, I would frequently get pulled over. Uh, and then when people realize, you know, oh, this guy is somewhat professional, the conversation will always end with, you know, why don't you just go ahead, you know? Um, but because I know America and the power structure, you never venture that question, you know, well, why'd you stop me in the first place? Yeah. Uh, you know, so you don't. Well, so it's, it's plausible denial that a lot of us, you know, um, we hear about things, but we don't want to think about that. And so in a lot of cases, we, we really like sanitize things or glorify it. And so I think for a lot of kids, you know, they sing about, you know, this underworld, you know, the rap world. So they rap about it. Um, they wear the gear, you know, um, they look up to different people, you know, uh, in the way they act. And what they don't realize is that that's survival mode, that we take things that we've been able to put in our hands and try to make the best of it. And so you look at, you know, um, sports, and you wonder why there's a disproportionate number of African Americans in the sports world. And it's because we realize this is an opportunity, and so we can compete and aim to be the very best. And so that whole idea of you know be like Mike, Mike put so much time into his craft, and it's just like the, some of these rappers. They're so good because they put so much time into it, and and where we have others 
trying to mimic that behavior, they don't really understand, you know, the reason why um, so much time was dedicated to be the best or among the best, um, because that was the way up, the way out. Yeah. 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 I think think there's a big disconnect, not even with with every generation. There's a sense of, and I don't know if it only exists in America, the sense of entitlement, where Mm -hmm. if you look at somebody who makes something look effortless, it happened all the time in acting. In the acting world, everybody could call themselves an actor. There was no degree. You pop up in an acting class, say, yeah, I'm an actor, and start getting auditions. And um, but there was a lot of work that went into it, and uh, it, but that goes with a lot of things. People, um, they just look at things and they they want to do them, so they think they should be able to do them. And then when they don't, or when they're not able to, there's frustration, um, or some people just fake it. But uh, but but I get what you're saying. Like when you're back, you, you see an opportunity. This is my way out, so I'm going to bust my ass. You know, I'm I'm going to put in I'm going to put in triple time. It was the same with Eminem. Eminem didn't, uh, you know, it was his only. It's all he could do, and so he just put endless. I mean, it, it was almost escapism. It was like an addiction because he couldn't do anything else. So for him not to go get picked on and all the other stuff that was going, on, he didn't have no place in the world. So he just buried himself in that. And right. that Jordan documentary, you know, you see, I mean, it, you know, that's. There's a reason somebody's that great. People like to think people are just naturally great because there's some naturals in high school. They mm-hmm. going pro. No, those naturals went pro. The ones that worked the hardest, they went pro. Those guys didn't go pro. They're selling cars now or doing whatever they're doing, you know. But yeah. there's work that goes into it. Um, I got a question for you. Um, <clears throat> when you have a power structure such as ours that's based in racism, um, you know, I was telling someone the other day that, you know, we were talking about Trump, you know, telling everyone that he's going to bring out the military and put the guns on people. And, uh, you know, there's a part of America that wants to see that happen. Mm-hmm. There's a part of America that wants those soldiers to open fire and, and have at it. Um, you know, I don't know if this power structure is willing to relinquish power Mm -hmm. and, and if it's not willing to relinquish power, you're going to have a huge conflict and a huge problem. Well, and this falls into one of our questions that we just got to, it was actually Alexis. Me and Alexis had a little back and forth because I'm, you know, I'm coming from the, not really, it wasn't an argument, but I'm, I'm always going to fight for love. Right. I, I know that violence is uh, it can happen, and what Sean's saying is if they don't relinquish power, well, there's going to be some violence, you know. And, and, and in that regard, it's justifiable, you know. Like, it, like I said, if the, the, the analogy that guy's got me down, once I get up, it's, I'm not I'm not looking in your eyes, and I'm, I'm gonna my gut response at that point is to retaliate until I feel vindicated. And that is that right? No, it's not right. Justifiable, yes, um, you know, but. Uh, Alexis asked a question. She said, aren't the, the uh, angry um, still expressions of God? And I believe they are. But, you know, this question directed for, I guess, all of us. But what, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, um, it is an expression of God because we all are spiritual beings. You know, so within that context, we are expressions of God. Um, now, we can be separate from God. 
in our behavior or our thoughts. And oftentimes when we feel like we have no other power um, structure, and so we turn away from love, which is God, um, we're sort of off track. And so we're not in alignment with God or that higher spiritual self. And so right. while it is, yeah, while it is an expression, uh, it's a separate expression because if we really decide that we're going to be in alignment, um, we're about love, you know, and creating that opportunity to radiate love and educate people. And I, I agree with that fully and I've found myself in these debates and, you know, people can look at me as an outsider, right? Cause I am, I'm not, I'm not the face of this fight, but I, you know, I reached out to some people that are, that are the face of this fight. And I said, look, I, you tell me where you want me. If it's in rank and file, if I belong out there, if I belong next to you on the front line, you tell me I'm in it with you. You know what I mean? This is your thing. You're the face of it. But let, maybe I got some things I can help you, you know, strategize with. But um, but it'll come from a place of love. Like, you know, and, and what rioting isn't, it's not it's not love. It's frustration. And it's justifiable. But it also shows the powers that be is you're disorganized and you're angry. And they can take advantage of that. They can spin that around real quick. But. Uh, what I was saying in my post when I responded to Alexis and then another person too, I said, uh, I said, look, our lower vibrational nature doesn't need any help. Like it doesn't need a cheerleader. It doesn't need me. In, in, in the way I, it's going to do fine just on its own. It's our natural gut response. I'm always going to, like I said, Martin Luther King was a hero of mine um, because he taught me what the parables couldn't in the Bible. And he demonstrated unconditional love. Then I understood Jesus like that. So for, he, he was Christ-like to me. So I take him outside of, you know, what he did in terms of, uh, you know, the civil rights movement, just what he embodied to me was, uh, so I'll always go back to that and look at his demonstration and say, well, he was real. Because a lot of people say what he did didn't work and he got assassinated. But I, I like that energy still here. I mean, I, I don't I don't think that energy left when he was assassinated. He knew he was going to die. He had a purpose that was bigger than him. And he, he was militant with his love in that he was willing to step in front of those bullets and said, bring it to me. I ain't going to attack you, but I ain't going to run either. I'm right here. You know, I, I thought that was, I thought that's braver than anybody throwing a bomb in a white castle. You know what I mean? Like to me, you know, but again, I get the frustration. I understand um, how do we rope it in? Cause they're listening. They're listening. Now. They have no choice but to, but I, I know what you're saying. Like if it comes down to it and they don't want to relinquish power, then, so a lot of it for me is, you know, it's, you know, I'm a huge Che Guevara fan. Um, you know, when I was younger, I loved him. He was like a Christ-like figure for me because, you know, revolution um, and change is extremely difficult once you have an embedded power structure that's been around for a long time that has all the money, that has all the all the resources that it could ever possibly need. Um, you know, I, I always look at, you know, the first two main ingredients for revolution is unity and organization. Mm -hmm. And if you really get a large amount of people on the same spiritual mission, sometimes just the sight of that will allow you to relinquish control, some control. But, you know, it's just, uh, you know, the, the, the generations right now, 
They want the equality now, and we want it today. And you're going to give it today. And we're going to be out here every night until we get it. And I can understand that because, to tell you the truth, when I was younger, I wasn't really much of a patient man. And I tell you the truth, I'm probably still not that patient of a man, you know. But I, I have to – I always hold a spot, you know, because when we talk – when I talk of revolution and stuff, you know, to become – you know, the Americans had the revolt against the British to be free. Mm-hmm. And in the same breath, I think the same elements are included in that today. We have to fight for liberty and freedom because it's been denied for a particular group for a long time. And, you know, the, the, the poverty cycle it has been proven and shown. And sometimes, you know, it takes drastic measures to break cycles like that. <clears throat> You know, I look at worldwide and when you use force, you know, through war, you're in a never ending war and it's a physical. But when you look at, you know, what I say are sacred martyrs, you know, Martin Luther King um, and before him, Jesus, they were martyrs. But keep in mind that they were leaving legacies. Um, They didn't have true movements um, until after their death. And so with George Floyd, you know, you hate to think about it, but because he's a martyr, now we have the ingredients for a movement. But think about Jesus was not in style because he was challenging the power structure. That's what he was challenging. It wasn't a religious movement back then, he was standing up challenging the power structure and saying that everyone is created equal. And Martin Luther King came along with that same philosophy. Gandhi had the same philosophy. And and so keep in mind that movements don't start, you know, with the idea of you're going to be popular. Um, You have to be purposeful. And it starts with movement of the mind and that thought process about things. Uh, and it's through that humanitarian effort that we start to see people move. People are outraged right now because they saw a man murdered in cold blood. And they say, this doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel good. We have to do something about it. And that's what we, we see happening right now is a movement you know, being formed. But, um, some of the things they've asked for, I think they're going to happen like the other officers being charged. That's going to happen pretty soon now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and so now it's like we have to come up with an agenda as to what are some of the other things um, that need to happen within the power structure uh, and opportunity structure in our country. I think here's where, you know, it's it's uh, this is prime time to dig into prison reform. You know, just mm-hmm. it, it, it's an oppressive system. And, and yeah, it, it, it plagues, you know, people in poverty, too, because right? I, I was in it and you know, it was hard to get out of. And, and I think because I would, I would, I'm still white, because I'm white, I was able to navigate through a little bit easier maybe. Um, but it, it's a, there's still a lot of my friends that they killed themselves or bought them dead or they're in prison for life or, you know what I mean? So it, 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 poverty, poverty is like the next rung up. 
that I was I was talking to somebody and said, look, there's a difference between poverty and uh, and racism, right? Systemic racism, racism in general is poverty doesn't care about that, just wants to be poor, right? And it'll keep that system of poverty will keep you impoverished any way that it can. Don't know that it's designed that way, but it feels like it is. Um, and then systemic racism, well, that's going to push you into poverty, right? So I, that's I, that's why when I moved to the white communities, I, I really I always felt more connected to my friends in Detroit because we were poor together. And now I was getting made fun of because I was real poor for a white kid. You know what I mean? And I had to fight because people made fun of my clothes. But uh, so I felt more connected. But racism wants you dead. You know what I mean? Like race, there's a violence to racism. There's a hate to racism that doesn't exist in poverty. Poverty is just like stay poor. Um, no, you don't get any opportunities here. Stay poor. If you can work your way out, great. Ha ha. You know what I mean? But racism is violent. It's violent. It's hateful. You know, and that's when I understood that I didn't, when I was picked on for the color of my skin and I had to fight for that when I was in grade school, that really wasn't racism because they didn't even know what they were saying. It was just, you know, it's like calling your mom, you know what I mean? Or, you know, it was the same thing as that. Like, let's say this so we can throw our hands or make you run or punk you out or whatever. Really wasn't. Nobody really meant anything by it when I was there. And because there weren't adults looking at the little white kid, you know what I mean? Like in, in some of the white neighborhoods that are saying, oh, the neighborhood's going to go to this and that. And, you know what I mean? That didn't exist for us. It's a different thing. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're social conditioned, you know, um, to believe certain things about different people. And that could be based on gender, sexual orientation, you know, racial group, ethnic group. We're social conditioned to have our stereotypes, our biases. Uh, and, it, you know, I always tell people, you know, that solution is really uh, experiential, yeah. you know. Yeah. That's the solution because we've gone through a period that started right around the 70s and continuing to the 80s up until now where we've gone through sensitivity training, diversity training, unconscious bias training, and all those kind of trainings. But it's not until you avail yourself to experiences where you're in the setting with different people and you, you start to learn about yourself and about others. But most people live in silos where yeah. you really sanitize um, your surroundings and the people that you find yourself with on an average day, and that's what you do. Even if you ways when the clock strikes five o'clock, uh, and you see it, um, you know it was um, funny. I work in Rochester, um, but I used to live in Detroit. And what was so amazing on the times that I would leave the university at five or six o'clock, I would be going south. Most of the traffic out of Detroit would be going north and so you know it's like we'll work in detroit but not live in detroit and so you saw that mass exodus at yeah. five and six o'clock and it, it spoke a lot you know it's similar to you know um church scenario uh, you know they asked the question what's the most segregated time in the united states it's church time you know on sunday morning you know thank goodness at renaissance unity we have a diverse mm-hmm. congregation but across america the most Defining moment is when we go our separate ways to worship the person that we all say is our God. It's, it's, you know, when you speak to that Renaissance unity, because um, I had my experience in life, right? And I, I went out, I, I, I didn't care about my finances. I was out, 
I was a, I was a mover. I was going somewhere. I moved out to LA first year out of college. Didn't know anybody. Didn't know anything. Um, I had experienced. I looked at what racism was. You know, I you know I felt would be in a minority felt like, and there were some racist assholes in my neighborhood, and they probably there's probably still there blaming the whole uh, world for their shitty situation. But um, so I, that made me sick to my stomach. But then I moved out to LA and then in Hollywood, right? So everybody's diverse. They, you know, no, they're. I, I'd never even seen a gay person in my life. They were like unicorns. I didn't know they existed. You know, they, I thought that was like a mythical creature. But it, like, mm-hmm. there's this, so now I'm enmeshed in all of this, and I start, I start uh, thinking racism doesn't exist, right? I, I start, I start being one of those people when I hear about these racist incidents. Like, ah, come on, you, you no, know, there's no way. And then, uh, then, then Obama got elected, and I'm like, now it's dead. Racism gone for sure. But then, because I, I didn't know these guys in the South, this deep South mentality and, and, and these, these businessmen, and I didn't know how ugly that was and how much that still existed. But when he got elected and then you saw how they came after him, I'm like, oh, shit. I'm like, this is, so that's when I, that's when I started to, I had to accept it. And it's hard to accept as a white person because you got to take some blame, not that you perpetuated it, but you know, maybe you saw it and you didn't say anything about it, or maybe in your denial of it, you uh, you allowed it to happen a little bit too longer. So for me, I had to I had to step in and say, okay, well, look, I didn't know any better, and I, I, let me make up for lost time now because. Uh, but that's a hard thing for people to do, I think. You know, is to have that conversation with yourself and say, well, yeah, there's times where I probably could have stepped in and, and maybe made a, a difference at least for that one person in that one day, and I didn't. Um, but that's okay. You just got to make the shift. Yeah, you know, it is. It's important. You know, we recognize that most of our life is spent being bystanders. You know, where we see things, but we're not courageous enough to step in, you know, and say, this is not consistent with who we're supposed to be. This is not right. This is not acceptable. And so most of us do. We spend lives relegated to being bystanders. You know? And so, Vince, I know, you know your track record uh, of willingness to step out you know, and be the only one standing up for justice. Uh, and so that's commendable. You know, your show, you know, I, I watch it, you know, and it's amazing some of the subjects that you tackle. Um, but racism is, you know, is something that's, you know, it's so ingrained, but it's this whole idea um, of what sustains racism. And at some point, I think, Sean, you know, you talked about that power structure. That power structure is built on the idea of scarcity, you know. Yeah. Um, and when you look at everything as, you know, from a scarcity perspective, you don't see prosperity. And so you think I'm in a competition. One of the things, you know, from a philosophical standpoint um, and a spiritual base, I don't see limitation, you know, and scarcity. And so I see prosperity. And so there's enough for everyone. But we treat America um, like it's real finite. And so we create avenues for competition. And so we keep most people out of that competitive arena, which should not be competitive in nature because there's abundance of everything we want. There's no scarcity of money in the United States. You know, the question is, will you 
get out of your comfort zone and do something different that avails yourself to the opportunity to attract money. If I keep doing the same thing over and over and not get results, we know what that is. It's almost insanity to believe that change is going to happen if we continue to do the same things. And so we have to challenge ourselves to be different every day to be just slightly different. I keep saying that. I don't know what's up with our stuff. We good now? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I was saying this. I made the same, uh, you know, same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Um, and I always go back to hate begets hate, you know, <laughs> violence begets violence. It has to. There's no other way. This is just a, it, 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 take the spirituality out of it. This is the law of attraction. This is how the universe works. This is how energy finds other energy. And, yeah. you know, and that's why Martin Luther King was was Christ-like because he he took it every day. Like he he lived in that environment and he took it and people were bombing his house and they were threatening his kid. You know what I mean? Like those, those things happened. And uh and he just stood there and he said, no, I'm, I'm whatever. You're gonna have to work harder than that. You know what I mean? That that's militant. And I you know and Alexis was saying, you know, and it makes sense that uh that a lot of young black uh, people are afraid to get into a movement because everybody gets assassinated. Well, mm -hmm. and I get that. I, I know for me, like when I heard slavery, Martin Luther King was next. He became a hero. Then I spent my entire life looking for a cause I could die for. And found it yet. You know what I mean? And I, you don't necessarily have to die for a cause. This is one where you might have to, you know, for, for a, a, a there's been people in Black Lives Matter that were assassinated. So it's a scary thing, you know, but what Martin Luther King, what Jesus, what Gandhi, what those guys did is they uh, they valued their purpose more mm -hmm. than their lives. Their life was just a it was a means to an end. Right. It was a means to achieve this purpose. And they yeah. did it because we're talking about it. Right. But, you know, when you talk about being a martyr uh, and dying for something, don't we all have to die for something if we want change in our life? You think? I mean, metaphorically, even. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and that's what we don't realize. And so too many people feel frustration. And that frustration is by wanting something greater than what they see and what they experience. But again, they want to cling to the familiar. Mm -hmm. One of the things I had to do was leave the confines of my comfortable neighborhood in southwest Detroit because I wanted more. All I saw was people, you know, crime, murder, what I call sub-existence poverty. And so I knew I was going to fall into that cycle unless I had the courage to leave, you know, for four or five years um, to get educated on how do I function in a world that I was aspiring to get some of the things that I wanted so I could come back and make a difference in my neighborhood. And so part of me had to die. Mm -hmm. you know? and, and some of the thought processes that I was, you know, reared on, socialized to, some of those had to die when I built up the courage to really invest in the art and science of change. And so I think a lot of us need to become martyrs for change. 
I've, I've killed several iterations of Vince, you know, the, mm-hmm. in the worst, the, the, the best character, if I'm talking about acting, um, would have been the st- cool Vince, right? So I wasn't yeah. cool in the white neighborhood, but I, after a while I got sick of uh, fighting every, like every day I was fighting people. And, mm-hmm. uh, and this, this is going to take me off track, but there's people out there that are pushing this violence on these young kids saying it's the right way. And mm-hmm. I, I'm like, don't, if you're not out there standing in front of the barrel of the gun with that person saying, this is the right way. Don't tell that person that's the right way. You know what I mean? That's don't do that. But anyway, you know, I got sick of fighting. So I, I, I said, all right, well, I'm going to figure out what the cool people do and I'm going to do that. I'm going to do it better. So I, you know, probably around my junior year, I started to mesh in that way. I started to become the guy that everybody had to go to if you wanted to know where a party was. And I created what I call cool events. Mm-hmm. And I, did you see, you saw life goes on, right? right. That, that's where I killed him. You know what I mean? Like I wanted that guy dead because he was the worst thing. And I acquired all these superficial things that made me feel good in the moment. But I was so empty, you know, in, in retrospect, like that was just, that, that was a, uh, and it's an experience I had to go through, but I had to kill. And he's still there. Like in my amygdala, he'll still come up here. And with this, stepping out, um, you know, and, and putting my voice out there, I like to avoid conflict because I still have that anger and violence in me. And mm-hmm. and I'm always afraid that somebody's going to bring it out and I'm not going to be the man I want to be. So I avoid one-on-one conversations. And I know that's not good for me. I know for me to continue killing that part of me, I got to put myself out there and I got to have these conversations and I got to let people challenge me and I have to be okay with that. And, um, and so far, so far, so good, but it's, uh, this, this movement speaks to that because we're talking about a whole culture that essentially would have to kill everything that every gut reaction tendency that you have towards what you would like to do after they let you, you're up from the stranglehold now. And then the person's looking you right in the face and you got people behind you. You know what I mean? And, and everything in you just wants to take that person down because of what they did. But where does it go? It goes right back. It's going to go right back. It's going to go fighting, fighting, fighting. And it, it'll never change. Right. I, I think the collective consciousness that's going on is shifting extremely fast right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you have shifts that move as fast as this one um you know it's it's hard to pinpoint certain things but you know even at the detroit urban ministerial school you know we were taught like everything is in alignment like this whole everything that's going on right now and whatever is to come is all in alignment the way that we process our reality is what is is how I'm going to filter it inside. But if my consciousness and my perspective is grounded in unity and it's grounded in God, then I understand that whatever happens is going to happen. And 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 you know that God has his hands on this. Mm-hmm. And you know it's better to participate for something than to just stay stand silent. You know, I think that's what a large part of this problem was, is that there are people my age and older that stood silent for a long time. We saw this go on for a long time and we would get rah-rah for a while, you know, a couple days, talk about it for a couple months, but then it would fizzle out. You know, it would just kind of die out. 
And I think a lot of times once your economic status changes as you get older, those things that you fight for when you're younger kind of get pushed to the back. You know, it's, it's, um, my struggles are different now, you know, but in the back of the mind and in the reality of the collective consciousness, that struggle is still there. Yeah. And Sean, you're right. Every, every talk, and I'm sure Vince recognizes this, that every spiritual talk I give, I start off saying all is well and all is in divine order. Mm-hmm. And I say that because I believe in that principle that you just talked about, that collective consciousness. Um, there's nothing that's happenstance, you know what I mean? And nothing just happens. Um, but I think there's relativity to what's happening with the pandemic. Um, and now, you know, we see a man get murdered and react. And so the universe has a way of saying, can I get your attention? Mm-hmm. And then it says, you know, I had to make you uncomfortable. Otherwise, you would have never moved. And so what we're seeing, you know, is, is, is totally that collective energy. You know, with the pandemic, I think it's clear that the universe said, be still. You know, yeah. they put, stay home, be still, then see. And what we're seeing is that our collective consciousness is being moved because we need to have a movement towards change. And so I think these two major incidents, you know, in in one year, uh, is just amazing. And we're not, you know, halfway. We're back to back. And I, you know, I was talking to a friend. I'm like, look, um, we had the opportunity to rise to a new level of consciousness with COVID. Right. But what do we do? We talked numbers and we bickered and, uh, and, and really people who are claiming conspiracy theory, they really just were fearful because they were, and rightfully so, they lost their jobs. And I get it, you know, but but we were being called to rise to the level of, well, no, we're going to save some human lives. So let's just focus on that for now and put the other stuff to the rest. We failed there. Not everybody, but collectively, I think we did. And then now there's this. So are we going to do the same thing that we've always done? Or are we going to rise to the level of humanity? And, and are we going to, and that's, you know, it's, it's, it's easier said than done. And I, it, I know the trauma it took for me to have this mindset. So, and a lot of people haven't experienced that yet. And a lot of the young, young people that are out there that are just pissed, they haven't experienced it yet. So I can't expect them to understand it. But, but I, when I see it, I'm like, oh, it's so clear to me. Like what's being shown to us, the opportunity we have to rise above. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I think God prays to us, you know what I mean? Guys like, come on, get it right, you know what I mean? Get it right this time. You know, you got an opportunity here, do that thing. That thing Jesus told you about, Martin Luther King and Gandhi, they were all right, do that, you know? Well, we keep begging to go back to what we were doing before. And so the entire pandemic debate became, you know, one where let's change the executive order so we can get back to our normal way of living. And it's that normalcy that doesn't allow for expansion, you know, creativity and innovation, you know, and that collective consciousness that we talked about being unified. um, That's the tough part of this. And so when we talk about um, the president suggesting to use military force to go in and end this immediately, it's so we can get back to normal. And so we were talking about in the midway of the pandemic, a new normal emerging 
was the constant language yeah, yeah. and the new normal. We heard that so much uh, espoused, and now we're so bent on going back to what was normal, you know, the old normal, the familiar, and and so we're losing that opportunity to create something new. But that doesn't exist anymore. The old normal does not exist. Right. You know, but we think you can try yeah. to run that playbook again. Try to you know, but. Yeah. Rarely does the old playbook ever work in a new reality. Yeah. Plays that's work. The, you know, things just don't operate like that anymore because the consciousness has risen. But, but you know that it, it has for those who are tuned into it, that frequency, but most people have not tuned into that frequency. And so they think they're going back to what they consider to be normal the old way. Normal. Like you said, you, you can't go back to that old playbook. You know, uh, uh, much as you want, want to. People want that com- comfort, you know, and, and that com- that comfort zone, man. That's that's a that's that's the killer. You know, that that'll keep us stagnant. Yeah, you know, I grew up in a house, you know, and it was funny. Um, one of my siblings and I, we turned out kind of different. And you say, well, why is he the way he is versus she? I saw alcoholism up close and personal. I did not become an alcoholic because I can't go down that road. I said, I can't be like that. The other person you asked them, why are you alcoholic? Because my dad was, you know, and so there's choices that we, we make. Um, And every step of the way we justify ourselves. And the reason why I don't drink now is because I saw, you know, a stumbling alcoholic that really turned me off. And so I think we make those choices justify our, our actions our behavior then we got a we got a couple minutes and um we could talk about this stuff forever but we'll we'll, we'll come back and we'll we'll uh we'll get on some duality do you do you want to say anything in closing in uh in regard to anything pass forward um you know your thoughts you know i, I would just say this is one of the greatest moments in our history you know, I'm, I'm 56 and a half years of age, and I've never been provided this kind of opportunity where we can really expand our thought process, which leads to different types of feelings and then experiences that we can create. We have a blank canvas right now, and we also have people engaged um, early in their life. Again, the protesters are young people. They're impressionable. They want to learn how do we mobilize for something that's tangible, something that we can look back and is part of our legacy for change. And so here's an opportunity for us, you know, in all our different experiences, all our different colors and mindsets and experiences to make a difference. And so Vince, when you went back and said, you know, I'm not the face of this, you are the face of this. Because I would go back to Martin Luther King and tell you, what started out as a black movement didn't become powerful and change oriented until it was supported by whites. Yeah, that's it. In, even the NAACP, the funding primarily was from the Jewish community. And then others saw that this was something that was a humanitarian effort that was the right thing to do, and they joined in the cause. And so your face has to be at the front of this. You know, it, it can't be color driven. You know, it's everyone. I, I, I agree. 
spirit-driven. Spirit-driven. It really is. The spirit to change and that spirit based on, you know, love and connectedness. And so I, I think moving forward, this is one of the most, you know, adventurous, exciting times that we'll ever experience in our lifetime. Coming off of a pandemic, and we're still in the pandemic, but at the same time now we're looking and saying, what's the right thing to do? person to person, being spiritual beings, having a human experience, yeah, what would be our legacy. So we're writing history right now. Still fighting a good fight. Yeah. All right, White, well, we appreciate you coming on. We'll definitely get you on again. Um, it's a lot easier this way. Um, we'll be back in the studio soon, though. That's kind of cool, too. Okay, so, well, thanks for having me. I appreciate yeah, you coming on. I really enjoyed speaking with you. All right, well, thank you. You guys have a blessed day. Right. Yeah, blessed night. And we'll get to everybody's questions. Um, if you want to inbox them, we'll, we'll get to everybody's. And if you got anything for Glenn, I'll get it to Glenn. All right. Thanks, thanks for joining us. All right. Take care.